Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and and climate neutral certified so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin glow from the inside out get 10% off your first order with code glow at oseamalibu.com that's o s e a malibu.com code glow Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like gorillas, vomit and sharks. And we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of Gates is in fact all about power in Nazi Germany, or that the history of cannibalism, yes, Eating people is all about Tudor medicine. The man sitting opposite me who will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. This is another episode in our special homeschooling series. And in each episode, we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history. And we're going to prove that it does. And today is great fun. And it's all James's fault. It's entirely <laughs> James's fault. We are doing the history of blame. I'm not going to accept that blame, Sam Willis. <laughs> but how do we start? This is, do you realise this is episode number 16 in our homeschooling series? Yes, it's exciting, isn't it? It's, it's really very good. exciting. But where do we start with blame? Where do we lay the blame? Well, I think it's, it's interesting thinking about how different people in the past might have been blamed for certain events, whether women might have been blamed for things. That's a thing. That's a theme that crops up a lot in witchcraft in the 17th century. Um, we have people like Marx, who blames everything on capitalism. He blames the ills of his world on capitalism. And there are so many different examples of groups of people, usually unfairly, being apportioned blame for responsibility in the past. Yeah, so that's that's basically about scapegoats. So it's about societies or states blaming often outsiders, whether they be witches, gypsies, foreigners whether they be women or single mothers or children, blaming them for certain things. If you think about Nazi Germany, the Jews were seen as scapegoats and were demonised and they were seen as the cause of all problems. In our 
society at the moment. I think in the neoliberal West, we have a blame culture that is deeply distrustful of everything, that looks for accountability everywhere, blaming people for mistakes. We are at present in a COVID-19 crisis. And every time you look at the news or the media, you see people trying to lay blame for people not responding in the right way, not quickly enough, for the lack of response, for the lack of the protective equipment that people in the NHS need, or whether it be Donald Trump blaming China for, you know, spreading the disease. So blame is everywhere. We can also think about it in terms of the banking crisis, for example, and think about those rogue traders who are blamed, individuals picked out, are blamed for what, after all, were large systemic failures. Or you can see it at a, at a local level. You can see it in the history of the family. And you can think about people falling out and blaming each other. You can see it in the history of divorce, for example, the rise of blame and men and women divorcing. But uh, today we are going to be focusing primarily on blame in relation to World War One, the First World War and the aftermath of the First World War, particularly looking at the Versailles Treaty. So let's just stop and think briefly about the First World War and to put this in some kind of context before we talk about our about blame. Um, the point about the First World War is it fundamentally changes the course of history. It completely reshapes Europe. The scale of the, the battles and the, the bloodletting had never really been experienced before in Europe. And it fundamentally alters the balance of power. So the way that Europe worked and was structured and physically appeared before the war was very different to how it was after the, after the war. Uh, Germany, which was the strongest power in Europe before the war, ends up losing huge swathes of territory and suffering national humiliation. And the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was an enormous multilingual, multi-ethnic empire, completely disintegrates after the war. Um, the United States, that then goes into a, a huge area, a huge period of isolationism, the way that they um, get involved with the world's politics changes after the First World War as well. You also have the collapse of Imperial Russia, which leads to the Russian Revolution and so on. And so we've got this world absolutely and fundamentally changing, um, as well as having something like nine million people suffering a loss of life. Actually, one of the most interesting things you can do um, to try and understand the impact of the First World War is to look at a map of Europe before the war and then a map of Europe after the war. And you'll see particularly how the Austria-Hungarian Empire completely fragments into Czechoslovakia, Austria, Hungary, and so on. And how also the Russian Empire, that changes, and we have states, Poland, uh, coming in there. So you've got this, it's a very good visual way of seeing just how things changed. And what we're going to be doing now is looking at the idea and this question of who was blamed for the war and how they dealt with this concept of guilt in the Versailles Treaty, which is when everyone, um, all of the allies got together after the war to, to come up with a, with a treaty. Yes. Now, the First World War was between 1914 and 1918. And as Sam said, it had devastating consequences. The Treaty of Versailles, which was signed on the 28th of June 1919, 
was an arrangement that basically set out how Germany should be treated after this. And key to this was actually a clause of war guilt. So the Germans basically had to admit that it was their fault. And this appears in one of the first sections which look at reparations. In other words, the money that the Germans were going to have to pay to the Allied powers for having caused such havoc in Europe. And it appears as number, as it appears as Article 231. And it's one of the most controversial points in the treaty. And it reads, the Allied and associated governments affirm and Germany accepts the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage to which the Allied and associated governments and their nationals have been subjected as a consequence of the war imposed upon them by the aggression of Germany and her allies. Now, nowhere is the word guilt used, and that's a very important point. Nonetheless, this clause makes the legal basis to compel Germany to pay reparations for the war. And this clause in particular is probably one of the most problematic clauses in the entire document. It goes down like an absolute lead balloon. And the Germans in particular view this clause as an example of national humiliation, that Germany is going to be forced to accept full responsibility for causing the war. And German politicians are actually very vocal in their opposition to this. You know, they see it as an attempt to humiliate them internationally. And we can see this in a number of sources from the period. Now, the first one that I'm going to read to you is from Prince von Bülow. He's speaking in uh, 1918 and he remembers calling on the German Chancellor uh, Bethmann Hollweg in August 1914. And he remembers Bethmann stood in the centre of the room. There was a look of anguish in his eyes. For an instant, neither of us spoke. At last, I said to him, well, tell me at least how it happened. He raised his arms to heaven and answered, oh, if only I knew. And another one here, Count von Brockdorf Rantzau, who was head of German delegates at Versailles in 1919. And he writes, we are being forced to admit that we alone are to blame for the war. Such an admission on my lips would be a lie. We're not seeking to absolve or pardon Germany from all responsibility for this world war and for the way in which it was fought. However, we do strongly deny that Germany, whose people felt they were fighting a war of defence, should be forced to accept sole responsibility. So as you can see it, there is the German response. They do not want to see themselves simply as the only guilty party. Now, Germany's response to this falls on very deaf ears and the Allied papers, so the papers of the Allied powers, are very strong in their... Um, the Allied papers are very strong in the way that they protest 
these German complaints. Now listen to this. This is a headline and article from a British newspaper, The People, from the 25th of May, 1919. And the headline reads, Allies stern reply to Huns. In other words, Huns is a very dismissive way or very dismissive term for Germans during this period. Terms of peace treaty better than Germany deserves. War makers must be made to suffer. And then the article reads, the Allies have made a stern and uncompromising reply to Rantzau's pleas that German industry will be ruined and her population rendered destitute by the economic terms of the peace treaty. The reply points out that the terms have been determined by Germany's capacity to pay, not by her guilt. And the Huns are reminded that as they were responsible for the war, they must suffer the consequences as well as other nations. The German delegation has left for Spa to consult with their government, probably with the idea of arranging a means for saving their face, as it is now believed they will sign the treaty. In other words, you need to think about the British newspaper reaction to this, that it is basically saying the Germans need to be made to pay. So it is basically penalising them for the war, irrespective of their of their suffering. You've got to think how representative of that is, how representative is that of politicians at the time. And I think that's a very important point. Now, Sam, you're going on to tell us a little more about the context of what is happening, aren't you? Well, yes, um, it's really important to realise that the, the main powers at Versailles, there are, there are three people. You've got Georges Clemenceau, who is the Prime Minister of France. We've got uh, Woodrow Wilson, who's President of America, and David Lloyd George, who's Prime Minister of Britain. And they all have different perspectives on what would happen. And the final result of the treaty is is uh, directly um, created by the way that these men think and they react in relation to each other. So it's very important to realise that they've all desired different things. Let's start with Georges Clemenceau. You have to be aware that France has really massively suffered by the war and also that France has been invaded by the Germans in 1870 as well. So this is the second time this has happened easily within living memory. And huge numbers of the men of the French army, two thirds of the French uh, soldiers in the army have been killed or injured. And so the, the French still see the Germans as threatening as ever. You think about what's happening. Most of the war is being fought on, for the French anyway, in northern France. And they're very aware that Germany is still very much intact and the, the population is still very much intact. So they're threatened by Germany. And they're very frightened indeed. They don't want it to happen again. So they see the treaty as an unmissable opportunity to cripple Germany. They're the real, we describe them as hawks, I think, in today's press. Um, he's also a realist. He knows he's going to have to compromise on certain issues. But at the same time, he needs to represent the public opinion as it was in France. And that public opinion wants Germany to pay. Then we've got Woodrow Wilson, who's a very different politician indeed, a real idealist. And he also is not prepared to be pushed around. He's got a very clear idea what he wants. He definitely doesn't want the um, terms to be too harsh. He's very fearful that Germany will recover and then want revenge. 
Um, he's very keen on creating effective democracies in Europe so that the leaders would not then resort to war in the way that it had happened uh, in 1914. He wants nations to cooperate in in creating and maintaining the peace. And one of his key ideas is to establish the League of Nations. He also believes firmly in something called self-determination, an idea that nations should rule themselves rather than be part of a much broader empire who would not necessarily take their ideas to heart when deciding upon policy. So Woodrow Wilson's got these big vision, this big idea of how Europe should run itself. But at the same time, he's American and a lot of his ideas betray a, a certain ignorance of the way that these European countries are actually made up of the of the hugely complex different cultures, particularly the Austria-Hungarian Empire. And then we've got David Lloyd George and he sort of occupies the middle ground between Wilson and Clemenceau. Um, his priorities are very much reflected in the interests and concerns of um, of the British Empire. So he really does not want the Germans to have a navy and he is very concerned indeed about the maintaining overseas colonies because he sees those two as the strength of the British Empire, the maritime powers, um, the strength of the British Navy and also the um, enormous amount of wealth that comes into Britain from her colonies. And he realises that if he can deny Germany her navy and her colonies then it would keep British colonies safe and it would also deny them a huge amount of wealth from which they could then rebuild in the future. So all three of them have got very, very different ideas of what they want to get out of the treaty. And which is, I think, to a certain extent, why it comes out as being what, being one which is, it, it, it doesn't quite um, appeal to everyone. No, and I think, I think none of the big three was happy with the eventual terms of the treaty. So I think we've got the President of France, we've got the President of the United States, and we've got the Prime Minister of Britain. And after months of negotiation, what we end up with is something of a compromise. So some of their aims are met and some of them aren't. Um, I think key to understanding this is that had they not compromised in some way, there would never have been an eventual treaty. Now, I want to go on now and look at the terms of the treaty in a little more detail. And these can be divided into five main areas. Now, first of all, is this idea of war guilt. So we've already talked about that. This clause right at the start. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That wants the Germans to accept blame, but was seen by the Germans as extremely harsh. They didn't want to accept this, but in the end, they have to accept blame for starting the war. The second point is reparations. In other words, the money that they had to pay the Allies for the damage that they caused during the war. And the major powers agreed, without consulting Germany, precisely what they should pay. 
the exact figure wasn't actually set down until after the treaty was signed. So it wasn't agreed until 1921, when it was set at, listen to this, £6,600 This is an enormous figure. We are talking, in present day, we're probably talking trillions of pounds. If the terms of the payments had not later been changed under the Young Plan in 1929, it's important to think about this. Germany would not have finished paying these debts until 1984. So they'd have been paying it for most of the 20th century and you would have seen Germany absolutely crippled. The third main point about the terms of the treaty is what happened to German territories and colonies. And Germany's overseas empire was taken away. It had been one of the causes of bad relations between Britain and Germany before the war. Think about and remember the scramble for Africa in the late 19th century when both countries were out trying to grab particular parts of Africa for the natural resources that they brought that were all going to fuel their expansion in arms and increased militarization in Europe, which ultimately led to the First World War, was one of those factors that led to it. For, former German colonies, after the Treaty of Versailles, became mandates controlled by the League of Nations, which was set up at this time, and which effectively meant that they were controlled by Britain and by France. And Germany's European borders were also very extensive, and they were portioned out in various ways in order to make Germany much less powerful and in order to stop it joining together with its former ally in Austria. So if we think about this, you can think you can see how these different parcels of land were given. If you think about Alsace-Lorraine, that borderland between France and Germany, Alsace-Lorraine go back to France. The Rhineland, which is just by that, again, the borderland between France and Germany, that becomes a demilitarised zone. The Rhineland is a very strong industrial area. The Tsarland, which is in between there, is run by the League of Nations and then has a plebiscite to be held after 15 years to decide where they want to go. The union between Austria and Germany was forbidden. And if we go on to... Germany's eastern border. Um, Upper Silesia goes to Poland, as does Western Prussia and Posen. Uh, Danzig is a free city run by the League of Nations, and this was to be this was to give Poland a seaport. And East Prussia goes east to Lithuania. And then another area that was annexed was northern Schleswig, which is um, just below Denmark, and that goes to Denmark after a vote or plebiscite. So, in other words, all of the territories for Germany are, all of its borders are are separated and given to different people to lessen Germany's land mass and power. Now, the fourth important point about the Treaty of Versailles is what happened to Germany's armed forces, because people were very concerned 
about the size and power of the German army, especially, as Sam was saying, especially France. And the treaty therefore restricted German armed forces to a level well below what they had been before the war. The army was limited to 100,000 men. Conscription was banned, so soldiers had to be volunteers. You couldn't go out and press gang people into coming into the army. Germany was not allowed armoured vehicles, submarines or aircraft. And so their military capabilities were really affected by this. The Navy could build only six battleships. So again, their naval power was much diminished. And the Rhineland, as we've said, became a demilitarised zone. This meant that no German troops were allowed into that area. And the Rhineland was important because it was the border area between Germany and France. And finally, the final thing to say about the Treaty of Versailles is it set up the League of Nations. So previous methods of keeping peace had failed. And so what they did was to set up a League of Nations which acted as an international police force. And that's something that we will come to look at in another episode of this podcast series. Absolutely. Um, and it's fascinating how the world was reshaped. I've just got a little quote here to finish off with. This is from um, Professor Margaret Macmillan of the University of Toronto. She says, the peacemakers of 1919 made mistakes, of course. By their offhand treatment of the non-European world, they stirred up resentments for which the West is still paying today. They took pains over the borders in Europe, even if they did not draw them to everyone's satisfaction. But in Africa... They carried on the old practice of handing out territory to suit the imperialist powers. And in the Middle East, they threw together people in Iraq, most notably, who still have not managed to cohere into a civil society. So there's a huge impact around the world as well, not just in Europe. And I think it's an absolutely fascinating moment in the shaping of the modern world. James, do we have a task for people? We do have a task. We have a very interesting task today. Now, one of the things that I think will have been clear from this episode is that Germany and the Allies disagreed over the Treaty of Versailles. And there are two things that we want you to do. The first is we want you to design a poster, a protest poster by a German who is protesting the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. So you can draw all sorts of pictures, um, but also what we want you to get across is what are Germany's main problems with the Treaty of Versailles. And then we would like you to write a British newspaper article that is in favour of the Treaty of Versailles. So there we are, two very interesting tasks for you to do. I hope you enjoy doing them. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com to find out more about us. We're all over social media, so please find us on Facebook and on Instagram. Come and make friends. We'd love to hear from every one of you. That's it. Thanks for now, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.